But we're in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that we've been journeying through the book of Genesis this fall, winter. Um, we'll do it into the spring and then we'll take a little break for the summer, walk through the book of Ephesians and pick back up next fall uh, and finish up the book. But I'm just so excited about uh, what God's been doing through this series. And uh, another thing that I'm excited about is that this is actually our 20th year as a church at Crossroads. How amazing is that? Yeah. And so as we prepared for the 20th year, you know, one of the things that our elders and, and staff and leadership started praying about is getting back to our roots. Like when this church was planted, what were the things, the, the kingdom dreams that God had put on our heart? And one of the terms that was coined about Crossroads early on in uh, its uh, infancy was this idea that Crossroads was the church of the desperate ones. And so prayer became one thing that took center stage in everything that Crossroads did, and it has continued to be that. So this year, we've wanted to lean back into that theme, this, the theme of being the church of the desperate ones. God, we are desperate for you. And one of the ways that we are doing that is every seven weeks entering into a time of 24-7 prayer. Who participated in 24-7 prayer this last time? Yeah, a lot of you guys. Just wonderful. I mean, even if you haven't walked through that room, walk through that room, see all the prayers written on the wall. Look at all the prayers that we tossed on the outside of the wall of that prayer room from that week. Well, we're doing that again, um, and it's gonna coincide with the beginning of Lent. So on Wednesday of that week, uh, we will have a night of prayer and worship as we uh, commence Lent, heading towards Easter on Ash Wednesday. And so if you wanna sign up for 24-7 prayer uh, that starts on February 11th, uh, that link is on our website. And uh, our theme for, for, for this uh, iteration is dust and ashes. And I'm just gonna drop that there, let it percolate, let your mind think what that might mean. Rod will explain it more next week. Um, but super excited about that. All right, let's stand for the reading of God's word. All right, this is Genesis chapter 15. After this, what is this? Just this interaction that Abram has had with Melchizedek and him rescuing Lot. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took Abram outside. He said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can even count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And so the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him. 
cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and the thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. You may take a seat. All right, where are we at in the story? That's a strange passage, isn't it? But before we get there, we gotta kind of consider a few things. And, and, and one of the things we have to consider is where Abram's journey has taken him thus far. We are introduced to this guy named Abram in Genesis chapter 11, and God essentially chooses him to become the beginning process of this world and humanity reclamation project, that God is going to restore and redeem that which was lost when sin entered the world. And so at the ripe age of 75, God comes to Abram and he says, I want you to get up and walk. Get out of your homeland. And I want you to follow after my plans. And then God promises something to Abram. He says, when you do this, I will bless you. Not only will I bless you, but I will make your name great And through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. And so Abram gets up and and he starts walking after God. And there's something beautiful about this because there's already this little flavor of redemption. You know, Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the cool of the garden. And here Abram is not just walking out God's promise to him, but he's walking it out with God in tandem side by side. But I also want us to realize the gravity of what God was actually calling Abram to leave in a patriarchal society when he says, get up and leave. He's saying to Abram, leave everything that you've ever known, your friends, leave your house. By the way, your 401k, it will not transfer all of the equity in your house. It's gone. You'll have no friends. The people there, they won't speak your language. And I'm asking you to do this and to trust me. And so Abram, has this humongous call on his life. What a big call this is. And I think, you know, as Americans, we love the big call, the big bang, the spectacular. But we often forget that for Abram, this meant small, tiny, incremental little steps, one after the other, one foot in front of the other for years. So that by the time that we get to our passage today, our best bets is that 10 years have passed. 
We're told in the next chapter that Abram's 86, so maybe in this chapter he's 85, or maybe he is 86, but either way, over a decade has passed. And we're introduced to Abram, and he's in a crisis of faith in so many ways. He's coming to God, and he's going, not only am I not famous, you haven't made my name great, there certainly aren't nations that have come from me, because I don't even have one son. Can you imagine what's going on in his brain? I mean, what were you doing 10 years ago? And if someone had promised you something 10 years ago and it still had not happened today, would you believe that it would still happen? And yet the Bible holds up this man, Abram, as this pillar of faith. And if you know his stories, it's full of imperfections. But that also means that we have to learn something about this idea of faith in this passage. And to do that, we need to look at the story. Look at verse one. It says that the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. Now, for me, that didn't register right away because I could take these things and I want to turn it into this theological concept. But I mean, what are you seeing in your mind's eye when you read this? The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. A vision is something that Abram sees in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Abram sees a vision of the word of the Lord. You tell me who he's looking at. And out of this vision, he sees the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord says two things to Abram. He says, first, Abram, I am your shield. I know you just defeated all of these people to rescue your nephew Lot, but I'm actually the one who protected you. It wasn't your might. It wasn't all of the military strength that you had. It's not all the possessions that you have. I am your shield. And more than that, Abram, I am your shield. Reward. So into Abram's fear, his doubt, his confusion, God shows up and he says, more than anything that I have already blessed you with, I am that thing that is your reward, Abram. And I just wonder in my own life, as I looked at this passage this week, like if God took away everything that I thought made my life significant, gave it worth, And he came to me like he came to Abram and said, Trig, I'm your reward. (laughs) What would my response be? What would your response be? Could you stand on that promise? But I love where this text goes because you might think that the man of faith here is gonna go to God and say, you are right, thank you for correcting my thinking. You are my great reward, thank you God. But he doesn't. Instead, he accuses God. He says, what can you give me, Lord? Because I don't even have a son yet. And the way that this reads is actually really stunning. Abraham's frustrated with God. He says, I remain childless. And that word remain in the Hebrew is the word halak. Do you know what that word is? Walk. Abram says, I walk childless. 
So what is Abram saying? He's saying, God, you told me to walk and all I've been doing is walking after you. It's been a decade and I still walk childless. You do your part, God. I've done mine. And we think like God's just gonna boom, like smite this guy. But he doesn't. Have you ever just yelled at God? Just scream at him. You know you can. If you haven't, you should try it. You think that's irreverent, go read the Psalms. This is the God that we serve. This is what relationship looks like. Abram comes to his heavenly father and he says, you promised this thing and I don't have it yet. And he holds Yahweh, the king of the universe, to account. See, this is so not like safe Christianity. But then I thought about it this week, and and it's actually true. Honesty is the fertile soil for intimacy. God doesn't do fake. He doesn't do passive aggression. He wants brutal honesty. And then I thought about my daughters when they're mad at me. I actually love when they come to me and they start banging on my thighs and they start yelling at me and they're holding me to account because I told them they're gonna get a gummy bear and I haven't given it to them yet. (laughs) Dad, you told me. And what happens in that moment? Do I recoil and say, how dare you talk to your dad like that? No, I give him the gummy bear. (laughs) Even though they don't deserve it, little snots. And Abram doesn't deserve anything here either. But he comes to God in honesty. And it breeds intimacy. Actually, it it screams Abram's intimacy with God. It reveals his faith. He doesn't bottle it up. The one thing God doesn't want you to do is to bottle it up and walk away in the other direction. He wants you to bring your fear, bring your confusion, bring your doubt right to the throne of Jesus. And so Abram does this. He says, I don't have a son. And and look at verse four. It says that the word of the Lord comes to him again. This man will not be your heir, Abram, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Now, more than what God says to Abram, I want us to notice what happens here in both verse one and verse four, who's coming to who here? Is Abram coming to God or is God coming to Abram? God's coming to Abram. And sometimes I think that the way that we treat God, at least in our relationship with him, is that he's this cat that's hidden in the bowels of a dark basement. We have to kind of call him out. Here, kitty, kitty, come on. And with our spiritual techniques and the way that we pray and the things that we say and the stuff that we do, we feel that we have to call God out to speak to us, to bless us, to be in relationship with us. And yet the word of the Lord comes to Abram twice in this text and that tells me a couple of things. First, do you know that God is far more willing to come to you than you are even wanting him to come to you? And secondly, that God is far more willing to bless you than you even want him to bless you. And he comes to Abram here and he says, don't you worry, that son is coming, but I need you to trust me. 
trust me one more time, Abram. And I love that, that in this dance of faith that we can be real and raw and honest with God. I love what the psalmist says. It says this, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Or what about the prophet Isaiah? Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. How about Peter? Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Or what about the writer of Hebrews? Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in help in our time of need. This is what faith does. Come to, just come to him. Come to him. Rest on the promise of God. Hold God to account for his own promises. Do you know that you can do that? Do you know this type of faith? A type of faith that is willing to spill all of their doubt and fear and confusion and anger at the feet of Jesus. And see, half the reason that I think that we don't pray is not because we're not disciplined enough. I think we're plenty disciplined in the things that we love and the things that we do. But I think the reason that we often don't pray is because we don't think that we can actually come to God the way that we are, whatever we are. And I get it. I always thought growing up that prayer was something that you did in a church building, reading off of a certain script, like God was this divine lawyer, and I had to come to him with this PhD-like speech to get God to listen to me. But this story is, is, is so antithetical to that. Read the Psalms, it's antithetical to that. God loves this kind of brutally honest prayer. And this is why I was so encouraged by 24-7 prayer to start the year off, because I walked through that room after that week of prayer, and these types of prayers were just falling off of the walls of people casting all of their burdens on God. And that screams faith. And so into this moment, Abram questions God, and look at how gentle God is with Abram in verse five. The word of the Lord comes to Abram again, and he takes him by the hand and he says, Abram, I just want to get you outside of your tent and I want you to consider the sky and the stars, Abram. And this might have been something like what Abram was looking at in the desert region that he found himself in on a moonless night, just the sky looking like this dark blanket encrusted with diamonds and God says, Abram, look up, consider the stars, so shall your offspring be. You see those stars, you can't even count them. That's what your descendants are going to be like. And it's kind of hard for us Michiganders living in the dark, depressing gray of the winter to like, amen, <laughs> amen. It's, it is, it's bad out there, guys. But to really realize the magnitude of this moment, but any of us have had these moments in creation, right, where we're just enveloped in the universe and it puts us back into proper perspective. Maybe it was on the coast of California or 
the shores of Lake Michigan or the desert in Phoenix, Arizona or golfing someday, I don't know, but we've all been there where all of a sudden creation just hits us in a new way and puts proper perspective into our life. And you gotta imagine though that Abram is thinking like, hey bud, that's a pretty big promise for someone that's infertile at 85. But God simply says, look up. And I just wonder that when we are doubting, when we are doubting God's love, when we are doubting his purposes and plans in our life, what are the things that we are looking at? See, I think that we're far more tempted to look down. You know, my distraction of choice is ESPN. Just scroll on there, look at some articles. I don't know what your escape of choice is, but oftentimes I think this message is more relevant than ever that when we are doubting, when we are confused, when we're angry, when we're hurting, we are far more tempted to look down at something than get outside and look up. And the problem is that when we do this, the more we look down, the more we look internally at our own lives, the more we look at our Instagram, the more we look at our 401k, the more we look about all the things that have to do with me. It makes the world feel so small, but if you step outside and consider creation, you realize just how little you are, and yet your heavenly Father cares for you. Look up. In fact, Jesus even says this. He says, look up. Consider the lilies of the field. I clothe them. Consider the birds of the air. I feed them. And how much more valuable are you than they? Stop worrying about these things. Look up. So Crossroads, what are you looking at? What is the first thing that you run to in doubt and fear and confusion? Look up. Stop looking down. Maybe take a walk outside. Consider the universe. God is in control. You are not. And that's a very good thing. And out of this, we get one of the most famous verses in all of scripture. Verse six. And Abram believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. And this verse is so important that it gets great commentary at length in Romans, Galatians, and even the book of James. And yet it's stunning to me that there is no commentary on this statement in this text. It's like it's just mic drop and then they move on with the rest of the story. So I had to ask myself the question this week, well, why is there no commentary on this big theological statement? And it's because the life of Abram, the story itself is the commentary on what faith looks like. Faith is not an intellectual concept to grasp. It's, it, it, it's a life lived for God, trusting God. And Abram trusted God enough to leave his home, waited years for the promised blessing, rescued his nephew Lot, brought all of his anger, doubt, and fear to God. He's far from perfect. He makes plenty of mistakes. But when he's gotten off track, he turns and he keeps turning back to God. It's not a one-time decision. It's a life of decisions. This is what faith looks like. And that's why I love that the original Hebrew word here for believe is the word aman, from which we get the word amen. 
So you could also translate this text that Abram said amen to the Lord. Let it be so. Amen to the Lord. And God credited it to him as righteousness. Do you know what amen is saying? I'm not in control. I wave the white flag of surrender. I give you the keys to my life. I trust you. That's what faith is. It's saying your thoughts are higher, your ways are better, and now I will act as if it is true. I will respond in faith. Faith always has a story to tell. Abram's faith is the story of Abram's life. So what story is your faith telling? What story is your faith telling? Because if you think that faith is just knowing the right answers about God or getting saved and then doing nothing, or on the flip side, maybe it's just a spiritual checklist of things that I have to perform for God to get him to like me, or worse, love me, then when things really hit the fan, when you're dealing with infertility, when the heat gets turned up, when the cancer diagnosis comes in, this faith will just crumble. These circumstances will take you out, but that's not the picture that we get here because biblical faith is not just what we know with our heads, it's what we do with our lives. It's trusting God, especially when we're doubting, especially when we're afraid, especially when we don't know what to do. I have a friend, a couple of friends that have walked through some pretty immense suffering in their lives. And I was having a conversation with one of them this week who talked about the most transformative time in his faith. And it came when one of his sons got a diagnosis in utero that was absolutely catastrophic. And in that moment, he was angry, perplexed, confused, fearful. And he proceeded to tell me I asked him what his life looked like, what his faith like looked like for the next couple of months. And he's a hunter, so he would go out into the woods, he told me, get up into his tree stand and just scream at the top of his lungs to God, curse at God, yell at God through snot and tears. I don't get it. I don't know what you're doing. And rather than this type of faith expression being an offense to God, I actually think that God looks down and he smiles at that because he looks at that type of expression of faith and he says, yes, he's coming to me with all of his hurt, with all of his doubt, with all of his anger, and he's willing to pound on my legs and say, dad, what's going on? Because sometimes that's the only thing that we have. It's the only thing in our tank to just yell out to God, I need you. Where are you? And that's an expression of faith. That's actually what faith looks like. It's hanging on to God for dear life. Which is why what happens next in this text is that into Abram's struggles, God responds with what may be the most powerful picture of God's love for us in the entire Bible, minus the cross. Read verses nine and 10. 
So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, cut them into two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And you're thinking, well, what is going on here? But look at verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And if you're confused by all of this, that's okay, but I can assure you that Abram was not confused at all because what God had asked him to do was to uh, provide the basis for a covenant-making ceremony. Now, the closest thing in our culture to a covenant is like a contract. And so we say things like, I will pay my mortgage or you can take my house. But in their culture, they would cut covenants. And the way that a covenant was cut is that animals were brought forth, they were slain, and they were cut in two. Here's a crude diagram of what it might look like. And as they were cut in two, the blood would spill into the middle and would basically create an aisle of blood. And then both parties would walk barefoot through those pieces, getting their feet filthy in blood. And what they were saying as they walked through the aisle of those pieces of the animal is let what happened to these animals happen to me if I do not live up to my side of the covenant. And so here's Abram, the lesser party, and he provides the animals, and God, the greater party, provides the terms. God's terms to Abram come to us in 13 to 16, where God says, I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna make you a father of great nation, and through you all nations will be blessed. And then here comes Abram's turn. Abram, what are your terms of the covenant? We actually get those in chapter 17, verse one, where it says, Abram, you and your descendants, you must walk blamelessly, walk blamelessly before me. And so then in verse 12, it makes sense of all this because Abram falls into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness comes over Abram. And that's just a biblical term for Abram being scared to death because he knows he can't live up to this. He's a dead man. There's no way he can be faithful in the way that God is asking him to be faithful. Not a chance. But then we get this weird scene in verse 17 when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces, and then poof, the story is seemingly over and you're left scratching your head. But what does all this mean? Well, in every great narrative, whether it's in a movie or in a book, generally the plot arc climaxes when the main character is doing something baller. They're conquering something, they're winning some game, or forging ahead. The only thing we never see in a movie is that at the climax, the main character is not even active. Worse, he's asleep. <laughs> That's funny. Not that funny, but uh, it is funny. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Praise God, yeah. So think about this. 
What does Abram do in this passage when we actually look at it? He believes and then he sleeps. He believes, God credits him as righteousness, he prepares a couple of animals and then he sleeps. And by the way, he's not as faithful as you think that he is because read the next chapter, he royally screws this whole thing up. But look at what God does in this story. God comes to Abram twice on his own accord. God pleads with Abram to trust me. I am your reward, Abram. There's no reason to fear. When Abram doubts, God takes him by the hand. He leads him outside. He says, consider the universe. Consider the stars. These will be like your offspring. And then Abram, finally, he does something. Praise God, he believes. But then God again takes the reins and he credits it to him as righteousness. And then Abram prepares a couple animals, but then God descends in smoke and a flaming torch. And if you know the rest of the story, I mean, we're thinking about God leading the Israelites in a pillar of smoke, in a pillar of fire. And God descends and Two things go through the pieces, but not one of them was Abram. Both the torch and the smoke, they walk and dip their feet in that blood and they go through the pieces. And we're left like, what just happened? Well, the simplest way to put it is that God just sentenced himself to death. Because God knows Abram can't live up to that side of the covenant. So while Abram is sleeping, he's not even an active participant in this whole ritual. He's knocked out and God walks through the pieces, puts his feet in the blood. And what is God saying? If I screw up Abram, I'm a dead man. But if you screw up Abram, I'm a dead man. We're 15 chapters into the Bible, and here is the gospel. And see, this is a message about God's initiative. God does it. This story is not about Abram. Abram is not the hero of the story. God is. The Bible is not about David, the Bible is not about Saul. The, day, the Bible is not about Rahab or Ruth. The Bible's not about Paul or the disciples. The Bible's not about Mary. It's not about you. It's not about me. The Bible is about God and his radical, extravagant, overflowing love for us. And this is why some of the greatest moments in scripture happen when the rest of the cast is asleep. I mean, we've already seen this. When Adam gets the greatest gift that God has ever given him, woman, he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Do you know when this happens? Adam's asleep. And then we get Abram and he gets the gift of this covenant where God walks through the pieces. What's Abram doing? He's asleep. And then in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is duking it out with the Father and he's saying, God, I, I don't want to drink the cup of your wrath, the cup of the covenant, but I will do it if it's your will. And Jesus asked the disciples, please stay awake and pray with me. But what are they doing? They aren't awake. Guess what? They're asleep. The whole story is about God's radical love for us the stuff that he does for us, 
the sacrifices that he makes for us. And that's why I can confidently tell you that your faith is not about you. Your faith is not how strong your faith is. Your faith is not what you do. Your faith is about the object in which you put your faith in. And boy, is he a strong one. And here, 15 chapters into the Bible, he's pointing forward and he's saying, I'm going to sentence myself to death because of all of your sin, all of your brokenness, all of your wickedness, all of your addictions, all of your slander, all of your gossip. I'm putting myself on the hook for it. And then, moments after Luke tells us about the disciples sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus prays to take the cup of wrath away from him, the cup of the covenant, Jesus is going to be cut to pieces just like the animals sacrificed in this passage. He's gonna be flogged. His skin will be filleted in ribbons. His bloodied body will be splayed out on a cross. His hands and feet will be hammered to a post. People will drive thorns deep into his cranium, and he will be like a lamb led to slaughter. And Jesus Christ, God with flesh and bone on, will make good on his covenant promise 15 chapters into the Bible so that when we come to him, like Abram comes to him in this passage and says, Father, how can I know? And what could you possibly give me in light of X situation that's going on in my life. God paints us a picture in his own blood. He says, you don't think I love you? I died for you. You don't think I love you? I got into the mess with you. You don't think that I love you? I took all of it for you. You don't think that I love you or know your suffering? I suffered for you. Faith always has a story to tell. What is the story that your faith is telling? Is it real? Is it honest? Do you know that you can come to our Lord who knows you to the depths of your soul who became like you and was crushed for you. Wasn't it Jesus who said, this is the cup of my covenant. It's my blood. It's poured out for you. So that we can say, as the apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in this body, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is what Genesis 15 is about. And that God is the object of our faith. His righteousness now becomes your righteousness. And praise be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
Help us to be able to come to you in brutal honesty, knowing that you have cut a covenant with your blood, that you've bound yourself to us, that you love us. Help us to be real with you, to know that we can honestly approach you with all of our doubt and fear and and, and confusion, all of our anger and pain, and you will not turn us away. Help us to go to your Psalms that give expression to some of the descriptions of our pain and sorrow and help us to pray them to you. And Lord, as we worship, I just pray that we would all consider that question, like what faith or what story is my faith telling? And we would realize that if we've screwed up, there's time to turn back, there's time to repent. And if we're in a good season, that we bless you for it. So Lord, I just pray that if there's anybody in this room that has not received that love into their life, that they would do that boldly today, that they would put a stake in the ground and say, Lord, I'm following you, I trust you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stay.